All right. I found out this morning Pastor Kevin Kersnab likes Green Day, so you won't be seeing him serve at this church any longer. Um, it's very disappointing. I'm sorry to you, all you Green Day fans if you're out there. As always, the prayer counselors are available after service. It's, I mean, it's really bad. The top five worst bands. I'm sorry. If you're a visitor and you really love them, it's just not going to work out. I'm just... Uh, if you like Lord of the Rings, we can make it work. <laughs> By the way, thank you to the seven people, 17 people who sent me uh, the Babylon Bee article. About, uh, it was a satirical article, if you don't know what the Babylon Bee is, and it's, it's like an article that shows a bunch of people gathering around their pastor, and it says local congregation comes around, uh, has an intervention with their pastor over love for Lord of the Rings stories. Um, yeah. I want to draw your attention to one thing. Uh, it'll pop up on the screen in a moment. Uh, I'm involved in a couple of uh, uh, various other ministries, and, and when I don't ever mention them and there's something that comes up, everyone kind of will say, why didn't you say anything? So uh, one of the things that I'm involved in is called the Regeneration Project. We have a big annual event coming up October 27th. Um, we polled young people in a survey and tried to kind of find some common themes and then dedicated this all-day forum to the, the elements that were coming up. And one thing that's been coming up again and again is heaven, hell, Satan, demons, angels, kind of the spiritual realm. And so what we did was made a whole day around that topic. So it's in Satin Milpitas, October 27th. You can just go to regenerationproject.org. I'll be talking, I'll mention it a few other times. We have an issue with the slides today? Working on it? One time, who is there for the service? Uh, there's a Christmas Eve, sir. Christmas Eve is like Super Bowl in church world. There's actually Easter Super Bowl. Christmas like Stanley Cup? Something like that. Um, the slides didn't work. For the, were you there for that crew? Raise your hand if you were there for that crew. And the issue was bizarre because, well, it was horrible because the entire sermon was based on pictures. Like it was a, it was a complete sermon based around these, these little symbolic pictures moving along. And so I actually had to like describe them to imagine, like uh, you can imagine them. Oh, there it is. Half cut off though. Yeah, it's a conference on Evan. Um, <laughs> His name's actually Evan Hell. Um, uh, as a new teacher, a lot of false teachings. Yeah, and then we'll be talking about Urposeful. Uh, this is great. You know what? We're just going to rock it. So each week, we've been challenging you to take small baby steps in a specific area. Not to try and like make some giant commitment to go change the world, but small baby steps in three different areas. Uh, the first area, this clicker isn't even working, huh? Okay, so when you see this, that means change slides, all right? You ready? Stan, are you watching? Got it? Three different areas, we call them the purpose inside, the purpose outside, and the purpose alongside. When we kicked it off, we talked about the purpose inside, and what we meant by that was specifically like inside the church on Sunday morning. So we asked everyone to make a, a step 
in that area, whether it was committing to coming regularly on Sundays. We talked about how statistically the average churchgoer now goes to church less than once a month. We talked about how that's detrimental, the problems with that. Uh, we challenge you to become a regular giver. We challenge you to maybe serve in one of our various teams on Sunday morning. The following week, Sam was here and he spoke about the purpose outside. That's kind of our go theme. What are we doing both locally and globally when it comes to work of comp- works of compassion, mission, and evangelism? So many of you took steps in one of those areas. And today, I want to challenge you in the area that we'll call the purpose alongside. Now, what's interesting is this is sermon is entirely based around a picture. <laughs> and I kid you not. If there is any way to get up the famous Last Supper painting, if not, it's so famous you might picture it. Picture it in your head. You know? Who did it? What's the f- who, who, who painted the famous Last Supper picture? Da Vinci. Any geeks know enough, like, like narrow it down to a couple hundred year time period? Come on. I know you some history geeks. That's close enough. It's close enough. Okay, so you have that in your head, right? Now, this painting is so famous that when you think about the Last Supper, many of us instantly think up that picture and then kind of project that into the biblical world. So you don't picture like your version of Jesus and disciples in an upper room. When you picture the the Last Supper meal, you sort of picture that painting because pictures and images have that type of power. They can like reorient our brain. So when we think about the Lord's Supper, we think about that image. Now, there's a, f- several interesting pieces with the Lord's Supper. Um, and they're all inaccurate. They're all wrong. So first off, okay, are you picturing it? What time of day is it? Remember, there's a window in the back. It's the daytime. Now, why, why is that already kind of not historically accurate? Passover, dinner, supper, it's the evening. And it, it, when, it, when the picture does pop up, you'll see that in the background, it's like, it's like there's kind of green hills and it's like an open, open filled area, which the Last Supper, it's in the upper room, it's downtown Jerusalem, it doesn't look like that. So, so it's the wrong time of day, it's the wrong time of background. Also, there's, there's some uh, inaccuracies dealing with ethnicity. Everyone in it, for the most part, is pale white dudes. Uh, But these are Jewish dudes who toiled under the sun. So they're darker dudes. They're they're Jewish, one ethnic. Oh, yeah, great. Just in time to see super pale Jesus. I mean, that Jesus never got outside. Never went outside. Man, you never seen the sun. So that's not right. These are Jewish men who toiled under the sun. Something wrong with the food, too. Anyone see it? It's a little harder. Those are like biscuits. See, like there's biscuits on the table. It's flatbread. It's flatbread. Now, all of that stuff is fine. You don't want to nitpick it's a painting and be like, well, we're not going to look at that painting because it's historically inaccurate. That's not the point. But there's one other problem with it that is significant for what we're talking about today, and it's the table. In this picture, the table is, 
a long sort of banquet table that pretty much makes it impossible to have like legit conversation with anybody else, except if they're to your like your, your direct left or right. And that's kind of depicted as like, you know, if you want to talk to you, you're kind of reaching around the dude being rude. Um, and it creates this very formal banquet table feel where, where there's a lack of intimacy, a lack of closeness, and essentially the only people you could talk to are directly to your left or right, unless you want to be rude and kind of go around the back of somebody. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, they try to depict the table in a little bit more of a Jewish sense. Uh, however, this doesn't go far enough either. See, the tables that were used at this time were incredibly unique. They're called triclinians. And triclinians are a U-shaped table, and you don't sit at that table, you recline at that table. There's cushions and mats that are around, and you lay down, basically, and eat. So this is kind of like a cartoon depiction. But you see, it's a triclinium. It's U-shaped, and there's cushions or mats around it, and you recline, you lay down. Typically, you'd lay down, and you'd kind of rest your, yourself on your left arm, and you eat with your right arm. Here's another picture trying to maybe are kind of pictured a little bit better, but what's wrong with this one? They're all sitting up. And I, I think there's something behind this. I think it's very hard for modern minds to picture men laying down in that sort of intimate of a setting. And so it, when we imagine it, they're always sitting up like strong, ready for battle. But this, the Last Supper meal is a very intimate meal. meal. There's a closeness to it. Here's a picture of like, I don't know what this is from. This is like a Roman triclinium. But I want you to see, do you see the closeness? Do you see it? They're, like, that's, you're in someone's space. So when Jesus has this last meal, it's close, it's intimate, it's with his best friends. And picture all of this going down right before he's handed over to be crucified. Now there's some interesting things we could do with some historical hints in the text, in the Bible, that can help us piece together a little bit more how this meal went down and actually who was like sitting where. So first thing you need to know, is when you sat at the triclinium, kind of our modern mind would think the, the host would sit in the dead center, like on, on, right in the center of this image, and everyone else would be around them, sort of like da Vinci's table. He's in the center. The first century Jewish world, the host, who in this case would be Jesus, the one like presenting and performing the meal of Passover, would sit on the left-hand side, almost the far left, except he'd sit one side over, represented by the yellow cube. To his right, on our left, but to the person's right, there would be a space reserved for like the host trusted friend, like a best friend. Someone who you trust with your life, a best friend. They're not a guest, they're like a best friend. To the host's left, there would be a seat reserved, represented in blue, for someone who is considered like a, a special guest that evening, a place of honor, a guest of honor. Now immediately, you kind of start wondering, well, who do you think sat where? And there's little hints in the text that help us figure this out. So to the right of Jesus, 
is a friend, a good friend, like a best friend. Does the Bible give us any hints, any guesses? Yeah. From the Gospel of John, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. See how it says reclining? Have you ever noticed that? As he's reclining, and it's the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, what do we know about John? He's the youngest. Why does Jesus love him? People always wonder. I don't know. It's, I, th- I think, in my opinion, a lot of this is speculation, but I think it's because he's the youngest one. It's like a 12 or 13-year-old boy at this time. Jesus loves children. You want to make Jesus angry? Mess with kids. You want to make gentle Jesus, you know, carrying a little lamb in the pasture? Make that dude flip out? Mess with kids. Then he goes full on mafia on you. Seriously, what does Jesus say if you, if you harm children? This is mafia language. What, what happens to, what does Jesus say? Well, <laughs> have a millstone tied around your neck and throw you in the lake. That's mafia. <laughs> you mess with children, you, ang- you anger Jesus. So this language, though, isn't quite intimate enough. This is from the ESV. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. It's, it's actually more close than that. Uh, this is from the New American Standard, and it translates the language better in this case. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, bosom means chest area. But you see, it's not like he's just, John's not just kind of by his side kicking back. He's actually resting his head on Jesus' chest, reclining. It's close. This is like his, maybe his boy. Like, not his literal boy, literal son, but it's like that. Jesus is probably like a father figure to this young, young boy. So directly to the right of Jesus, you, you have John. And you know if he's reclining in a triclinium, he has to be on the right, the way, the, the way it works. Now, who could be to Jesus' right, or Jesus' left on our right. Again, this, this part is a little speculation, but this is interesting. Who holds the place of honor among the disciples? You'd think Peter, right? Like, Peter's the main dude. John is the, young, the youngest. Peter is the oldest kind of senior leader. He's always the spokesperson. It's gotta be Peter, right, right. Remember also the disciples argue about who gets to be at the side of Jesus? We don't know with certainty. I think it was Judas, and I'll tell you why. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at a triclinium and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one, will bet- one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, speculation, but there's not one dish at a table. You know, it's like when you go out to eat, everyone gets, app- like you don't get one appetizer and have it, de- some of you do, it's rude. Keep it on the end of the table. You get like three and you spread it out. So let's try clinium. It's possible that the person next to Jesus in the seat of honor is, is Judas because he's the one dipping bread in the same dish. Don't know. Is there anything else we can guess? 
There's one other seat that's always kind of spelled out for us, and it's the one on the far right. And this place is reserved for the person who's dedicated to being the servant for that night. And the servant is going to be the person like that possibly could wash feet, that possibly would go and get food if they ran out. It's not like a, a position of shame. It's just not a position of honor, and you're elected to sort of be the, the one who's doing all the errands for the evening dinner. You know, like, who could be in that seat? Don't know. It's possible that the servant's seat was where Jesus put Peter. Now, again, we don't know, but there's some hints. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The, disciple look, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So wherever Peter's at, he can't do the reclining thing and ask him. So what does he do? Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Peter's on the other end of the table. You're his favorite. He loves you. John, ask him. Ask him. He loves you. You're his, you're his boy, man. Now, there's another interesting thing about the role of servants and why you might think it could be Peter that was set in the servant's seat. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So who's the younger? John. Who's the spokesperson typically depicted as the leader? Peter. Verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, whatever, whoever's sitting where doesn't matter at this point. Because whoever is in that servant role, they're the ones that are supposed to be the servant for that evening. But what does Jesus do? Gets up. And he washes his disciples' feet. Who is the one that says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. That's my role to do to you. Peter. And so Jesus is not trying to, like, punish Peter. Like, you're the leader. That's bad. You need to be always meek and mild. What he's doing is saying, Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you, you should be doing. I'm going to step into that because Jesus is God king of kings, lord of lords, but he came to serve, not to be served, which should tell you something about how we should live. Jesus is the one among us who serves. So you got to picture this. Picture the disciples all around the table. Jesus goes through the Passover meal, and then when it's all said and done, there's one mini verse, a short verse that's it's crazy. It's crazy. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So how do they end this meal? They sing together. 
What's so crazy about this, this is fascinating. Have you ever seen a painting of, a, a painting of Jesus singing? In any movie do you see Jesus? I mean, you gotta picture this. Remember, for the longest time, whenever they did a Jesus movie, Jesus is always like, the Jesus and Jesus of Nazareth is scary. You know, he's just, come, I am the light of the world. Like, no emotion. Let the children come to me. Stay back, kid. Crazy, man. But Jesus told jokes. Jesus told cheesy dad jokes. You know what a cheesy dad joke is? Puns? How many of you dads do puns? You like them, you think they're funny. Jesus, like, does puns all over the place. It's everywhere in Scripture. He loves it. It's like his favorite form of communication. That and telling stories. And he also sang... Before he goes to die, he sings with his best friends. You want to know what song he sang? We know. We know what song he sang. La Bamba. No, he sang La Bamba. So there's a document called the Mishnah, roughly contemporaneous with the New Testament, a little while after, but it it has specific instructions on how to celebrate the Passover meal. And so the Passover meal at this time, for actually quite some time, probably since an era called the Maccabean period, there was a way that you celebrated the Passover meal. There was an exact order of things. And in the Passover meal, you sang something called the Hallel Psalms. And the Hallel Psalms are Psalm 113 to 118. And you always close the Passover meal by singing Psalm 118. I mean, this is fascinating. We know what Jesus sang before he went to the cross. He did what every Jewish man does. You lead your group in Psalm 118. Check, check out the words of this song. Psalm 118, before Jesus goes to the cross. Let those who fear the Lord say... His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and He answered me by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So the New Testament is written in Greek, but this is a psalm from the Hebrew Bible. So they would have been singing it in Hebrew. They would know this psalm in Hebrew. The word for salvation in Hebrew comes from the same root word that the actual name of Jesus comes from. So the verb that's used here in verb form in Hebrew is Yeshua. Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua. Like, this, this is spooky stuff right here. So, before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus and the disciples sing, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Jesus, my Yeshua, my Yeshua. It doesn't get better than this. This is insane. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. 
The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you have answered. You have become my Yeshua. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. And it ends, you are my God. I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. After that, Jesus goes out, and he prays. He prays for his disciples that they would have unity and have oneness. And then he prays for you. Did you know Jesus prayed for you? Jesus prayed for you. Before the cross, Jesus prays. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe through their message, the apostles' message. That's you. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I had given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Get the power of this. How does the world know that Jesus was sent by the Father? By the love and oneness and unity that you have with one another. That's the, the, the sign of Jesus saying, I am true. It's the church in unity and in love and in oneness. So, so go, go, go through this. How does Jesus spend his final hours before torture, crucifixion, and misery and agony? He spends it in an intimate gathering of his close friends, reviewing the Passover, which in those days you'd retell the Exodus story. In other words, you talk Bible, you pray, and you sing songs. Closeness, unity, friendship, intimacy. This is how Jesus spends his final hours before the cross. This word, intimacy, is a difficult one because we don't do it well. It's difficult to be intimate. And I mean that in every sense, like in marriage, in family, in church, in small groups. But deep down in every single human being, there's this deep desire to know and to be known. One of the most lonely places is to feel as if no one knows you. No one knows you. And trust me, you could have tons of friends and still have no one know you. And this is why the issue of intimacy is so difficult because as technology increases, we are simultaneously, paradoxically, more connected than we've ever been, but more disconnected than we've ever been. The average number of good friends people hold today is less than it was in the 50s. It goes down like every decade. So they're becoming more individualistic, more isolated, having less friends. And the effects are horrible. I mean, the research is clear. If, if, you, if you don't have those connections, if you're not experiencing deep connection with other human beings, it wreaks havoc on your life. I'll give you just one example in the family sphere. 
The average amount of meaningful conversation that a parent has with their, child, with their child in America is now 38 minutes a week. The average amount of meaningful conversation is 38 minutes a week. But math people, what's that per day? I don't know, seven and a half or something? Eight, I don't know. Meaningful conversation between mom and dad and child, rough between seven or eight minutes a day. There's been an enormous amount of research done, but if you want your child to be statistically less likely to get bad grades, wrestle with depression, wrestle with mental illness, violent crime, gang activity, suicide, every bad thing you could think of, if you wanna make your child statistically less likely to experience any of those things, there's one thing you could do immediately that would radically up the chances of a healthy life. And it's have dinner at the table together without the phones and have meaningful conversation. And I'm not just saying that because like, it's a value that I hold. The research is clear on this. There's been tons of research. There's actually programs in this country that try and teach parents to begin to have dinner meals with their children because on a like, governmental level, they see as it beneficial for society. So I don't say that to make anyone feel guilty. I know American habits are really bad with this stuff, but if you want to make a difference now, start having dinner together and have meaningful conversation and put the phones away. It'll make all the difference in the world. Now, uh, quick thing though, if you've never done this and you're just gonna start doing it to your teenagers, there will be open rebellion for like, I don't know, maybe it's called the seven years war. It could, it could be a long time. You keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep trying. What does experiencing community like Jesus had at the Last Supper do for us? When you're in a small group with friends, well, you begin to pray more specifically. You know, we don't pray specifically over everyone's prayers on a Sunday morning, we can't. But you do do that in a smaller setting. You understand the Bible better, why? Because I teach once a week, but in a, in a smaller setting is where you get to ask all the questions and wrestle with things and go, well, that doesn't make sense, or, you know, I don't know if I see it the same, the same way, and you wrestle, you have a dialogue, and it helps you handle the stresses of life easier. I mean, that's clear, that's clear. When you have good friends who know you, you can carry more weight upon your back. But two big, big things I wanna kind of tie all this together with why you need community, why you need, this is a type of community, large setting, but you also need healthy small settings, whether it's, a sm it's in a small group, it's a, like two or three people that get together and read and pray together, whatever those, those connections might look like, but you need them. Two big reasons. The need for humans to have significant bonds with other humans is so strong that if you don't, you'll create significant bonds with things that you don't want to. And there's tons of research on this that shows how, how people wrestling with addictions are oftentimes alone and isolated and that no, no one knows them. So you have to have a bond with something that gives your life meaning and purpose. There was research done, and John Ortberg, a pastor in uh, Menlo Park, is also a psychologist, PhD, uh, talks about research that was done on people who have good eating and like good, good health habits. So there was research done on two different 
groups of people. Group one are people who generally eat well, sleep well, and exercise. Don't think like super fitness person, but just someone with generally good health habits. Okay, that person. But they're lonely and they don't have any friends. They identify as that. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm alone. I really don't have many friends. Okay. If you looked at those people, people who eat healthy, exercise regularly, get good sleep, but are lonely, and you compare them to people who have bad eating habits, bad sleep habits, they don't really exercise. Don't picture, the, just like you're not supposed to picture the super extreme fitness person, don't picture someone who has horrible, horrible habits, just in general, bad eating, bad health, bad exercise habits. But that person in group two has lots of friends and good family support. When you compare those two people and you look at their life expectancy and when, when they die, who lives longer? The person with worse habits but more friends. So John Ortberg says, this study shows that it's better to eat Twinkies with friends than broccoli alone. <laughs> now, don't, don't mishear me, don't say like, oh man, God doesn't care if I have bad habits. No, you, you need, we all need to develop better habits for our body. We all, we all need to do that. But one of the best habits you can have for your physical health is friendship. It's friendship. You have those connections, you live a longer, happier life. And so at Menlo Park, where Pastor uh, Ortberg teaches at, they have a small group slogan. It's, join a small group or die. There's truth to that. You ever hear uh, when, when someone loses a spouse and, and someone will say like, oh, I hope they don't die of a broken heart? And it's kind of like this thing that we just think is someone's so, so, gonna miss their spouse so much they're gonna die of a broken heart and it's kind of lovely and romantic and it's honoring, but like have you ever stopped to think, is, like, is, that, is that like scientifically true? Have they done research on that? And the answer is yes and it's true. If you're an elderly person who loses a spouse, the first three months, your chances of dying compared to people who have their spouse increases by 60%. Like the first three months are bad. If you get past the first three months of losing your spouse, you kind of go back to the, to, to the averages of everyone else, but the first three months is really rough. You need human connection. Anyone familiar with this? This is a tap system. POWs in Vietnam, we're not allowed to communicate. And if you communicated with other POWs during the Vietnam War, you were tortured more than you were normally tortured. And so people would often risk being tortured in order to communicate, why? Because solitary confinement without any other human interaction is worse than torture. It's worse than torture. It's having your fingernails pulled out is not as bad as being alone in solitary confinement. And so they would risk small bits of communication in order to know that they were not alone and there was another American soldier in, in, in there with them. Well, what spread in the POW camps was a tap system. And it was a way to communicate without using words. In other words, soldiers tapped on walls in order to hear someone tap back and they risked getting more torture just to know there's someone else tapping and saying something. So this is the code that they used. It's, it's complicated, but quite simple. There's, there's a row and a column. So take W at the bottom. Everyone see W? 
That's in uh, column two, row, fi- row five. So the way you'd communicate a W is you tap five times, pause, and a two. So row five, column two, so it's, that's a W. And they tapped on walls to maintain human connection. It's how vital and important it is. You have to have intimate settings where you're known, where you're vulnerable. Your soul needs it. The other major reason why you need this type of things we'll call blind spots. I know in our culture, it's, we always hear like, how, don't change who you are, you're perfect just the way you are, never change for anybody, that's a bunch of nonsense. You'll never have a happy marriage if you don't change anything about yourself. It's a slogan for lonely, miserable people. I'm sorry if you're telling people that advice. It's really bad advice. It's just assumed in our culture, though. Now, for those of you, maybe there was something good about someone and someone was pressuring someone to change that and you said, don't change who you are. That's fine. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about what we tell our young people all the time. Don't change anything. You're perfect just the way. No, you are not. You're not. And so what being with close friends does, it, is, it enables them to show you your blind spots because you have blind spots. You have sinful habits. You have bad personality traits that you're not aware of. They're blind to you. They're blind spots. And so when you're vulnerable and honest and transparent with other close friends who you know love you and are for you and not against you, they can point that stuff out to you without you flipping out. Because you've got blind spots. We all do. Every last one of us. Each week, we've been challenging you to take a small step in some specific area in order to fill your life with more purpose. The ushers can start passing out communion as well. Um, This week, the challenge is represented on this card and it has to do with the grow section on the bottom. And my challenge is that you would check something off if to take a step, you can join a small group, a women's group, a marriage marriage group, a men's group. Uh, We're gonna be doing, uh, there's a single life group. We're gonna be starting, uh, you'll hear more about it, but like a sort of like two-year school of theology. But it's gonna be a smaller setting where you read the Bible together, you discuss things together. So there's, there's there's other things listed here. Review that. And what we've been doing every week is you put your name on it, you check something, and on your way out, you, you, you give it to, to one of the people collecting them, and we give you a, a wristband that matches the color of the commitment you signed up for. And it's just a reminder, it's just a reminder. Wear the wristband as a reminder. You need this. You need deep connections with other Christians where you're reading together, praying together, singing together. Jesus spent his last hours before the cross doing this. It's that important. It will literally extend your life. And maybe you're already in a small group or something and it's something different. Say, hey, I'm gonna st- we're gonna start eating dinner around the table with the kids. Mark that down, just let us know and it's good for you to write it down and go get the bracelet. Those are physical actions that remind you of your commitment made today. It's important. Your way out, drop them off, get a bracelet. Wristband, it's not a bracelet, it's a wristband. 
Bible talks about you making the right commitments in small areas and then getting more and more responsibility. So you do the, the, the first circle right and then maybe you could start working on bigger areas in your life. Started off this series by showing you this weird kind of stat in the Bible. How many times Paul wrote each phrase? Paul the Apostle says, my Lord once in the New Testament, but he says, our Lord 53 times. Christianity is not a, a solo endeavor. It's something you don't do by yourself. You do it in the church family. You do it with friends. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Mark records the event like this. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Picture that. Reclining, table, friends, singing, food. And then Jesus says, what is the new covenant? It's represented in this meal we're going to share. We symbolically do this every week to remember the meal that Jesus had and establish the new covenant. And as we do this, please stand. Before we take of this, I want us to go back to Psalm 118, to the words that Jesus clung to before the cross. And as we go through it, may you make the words of Jesus at his last meal your words. May, be, may they be the declaration of your heart. Psalm 118 says, let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua, my Jesus. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And finally, you are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And everyone said, his love endures forever. The bread represents the body of Christ broken on your behalf so that he might call you son or daughter, friend. The cup represents his blood spilt on your behalf. And as we drink, we proclaim our allegiance to Jesus until his return. Father, we thank you for the work of your son. We thank you that you've given every Christian an adoption certificate into the family of God. And even if we feel alone, we are not alone. Your spirit is near and your people are near. 
as we transition into worship through song and music, I pray that God's people would lift their voice up unto you, that you would be exalted, and that this church would seek after you with all of their soul, their might, their strength, their heart, and they would do so in community with other Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.